about three years ago, Clint and I were uh, driving back to, from Passion Conference, which is a uh, big gathering, a large gathering of, of kids, 18 to 25-year-olds and adults, that's why we were there, um, to worship Jesus and to talk about um, having a passion for his name and his glory. And so we were down in uh, Atlanta with about uh, 25,000 other people doing that thing at Passion Conference, and we're on our way back. And uh, Clint used to drive a PT Cruiser, and you know why, I'll tell you why he used to drive a PT Cruiser in a second. Um, We're following, we're convoying back out of Atlanta, we're almost to Chattanooga, and then all of a sudden we see Clint's PT Cruiser pull off to the side of the road on the interstate. That's not normal. And so I got a phone call from him. We sped past him, not because we just couldn't get over, Clint and I sped past him, and he gives me a call, and he said, hey, uh, my car just stopped. I was like, well, that's not good. So we pulled over, we went to the next town up, which was Dalton, Georgia, dropped everybody off at the, uh, at the Krispy Kreme Donuts. Amy, my wife, brought me back to the car where they were. I got in the car with, <laughs> I got in the car with Clint, and we waited and to try to figure out how we were going to get his car back up here to Tennessee. We sat in the car for about two hours calling every tow truck that we could find, and nobody would want to cover the area we were in. And so cars are passing us by, the, 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 the PT Cruiser is shaking, and both of us at that, at that time were simultaneously glad that we were together because we were friends, you know, and we wouldn't want to be on the side of the road without a friend. But also, each of us were wishing the other one knew something about cars. Because we don't. I mean, we know gas goes in there. <laughs> we barely know what type of gas. I mean, diesel's wrong. Thankfully, you notice the diesel thing doesn't fit into a, a gasoline, uh, regular gasoline, uh, you know, intake there, which is good. Okay, don't don't ask how I know that. Um, <laughs> who you're with matters, right? We were both saying, man, I wish you were a mechanic. <laughs> I wish you were a mechanic too. We didn't know what was wrong. We ended up. We're, so, we're fine, okay? That's what you need to know of the story. But really, the question is, or, and the, the thought is, who you are with matters. Who is with you matters. Now, we talked last week about the prophecy that says that a virgin would give birth, and this child would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. We talked about it, and we looked in Isaiah chapter 7, and we went background of what that meant. And there was a time in which the kingdom of Judah was surrounded by its enemies from Syria and from Israel. And God said there's going to be a child born to a virgin. They're going to name the child Emmanuel, and that will be a sign that deliverance from these oppressors is coming. Now, that was a sign that was completed thousands of years ago, or at least at this point before Jesus, about 700 years, 750 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. However, it was ultimately pointing to the fulfillment of a virgin named Mary who would give birth conceived by the Holy Spirit, of a son named Jesus who would save his people from the oppression of sin once and for all. And in Isaiah chapter 9, will be this morning, there's a description of this one who will save, of the one who is with us, the God who is with us, the one in the manger, the baby born, the God who became flesh is described in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. And it is my hope as we look at this today that we would realize who it is that 
who, who it is, Jesus, who is God with us. What does it look like? What are his characteristics? And why does it matter that, it, that he is God with us? And what does it mean? So that will lead us to two things. It will lead us to worship and devotion. Worship and devotion. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says this. For to us a child is born. For to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now I want to point out something. There are these little couplets, these words that are put together that show us who this God with us is. And at first off, it starts off here. It starts off in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So the first thing you need to know about this one who has come, this prophesied one, is that he is a human. He was born. Okay, he was not just the human because we're gonna. He's gonna be called a lot of other things. But at the at the very onset, you need to understand that the God who is with us, this Jesus that was born in a manger, and we see the little manger scene all around us at this time of year. You may have one in your house. I do. I've got a couple of them. I got the little tykes one that my son can play with, and I got that one that's the willow tree collection that if you touch, you die at my house because the things are expensive. Okay, it's like up on the piano where nobody can reach it. It's out of sight, out of mind, but it's meant to point us back to this Jesus being born to us, a child being given. And so what you really need to understand and remember is that Jesus came as a human, fully human and fully God. The word, the big Bible word we use for that, or theological word we use for God coming to earth in, in the person of Jesus is incarnation, okay? Everybody say that with me, incarnation, okay? Incarnation, it means God has become flesh. And so our hope Just like the hope that we saw in Isaiah chapter 7, the ultimate hope is that God will come to us as we are. He will meet us where we are in our sin, in our broken world as a baby. Which is just a hard thing to get and to realize that God came to earth as a baby. Now, I don't want you to know this. We love babies at the journey, and you see babies around all the time at the journey. You probably hear babies around all the time at the journey, and we are welcome that. And when you hear that, I want you to think about this. Our Savior, the God of the universe, the one who created it, who has always existed in the person of Jesus Christ, came to earth and was born like every human being in the world. And he cried, and he did all the things that babies do. And he was held by his mom, and he had to grow and develop. The God of this world came like that. And the hope that comes is for for to us, a son, it says, for us, a child is born, a son is given. Now I think about it, I look around this room, and I know several people in here, I know myself included, there have been times people who have struggled with fertility issues and and finally some of them have known a child like we amy and i we have struggled with fertility issues in the past and when our son was born it was a huge deal at my house because we god had given this and how much joy was related to that and and you know this babies are a lot of work but they bring a lot of joy and they are blessings from god 
And so this is magnified so much more by God coming to earth and bringing joy through the incarnation, God becoming a human. And so there is something so great about God getting in, coming down, and being in the, the midst of our mess. Is it not? Because there's so much of life, our, our lives, are so, there's so much of dichotomy to them. There's so much joy. We can experience the heights of joy and the depths of sorrows, and sometimes even on the same day. You can love your family so much and want to wring people's necks in your family simultaneously. How can that chaos exist? How, how, how does, there's this, there's this, and Jesus, he comes in the middle of that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were not God's friends, but his enemies, God sends his son. Part of his plan is rescue mission. And it's so tangible. It's, it's as tangible as, as holding a newborn. That's how hope comes. That's God's device. Is the God of the universe would come into the human mess and bring God to us when we, could, we were groping and could not find anything else but sin and death. And it's so tangible. Such a great illustration of who God is that he would come in our mess. So this is a God who is humanity and deity right here. He is nat- there's natural and supernatural here. There's promise and fulfillment. A son would be born to save his people. A son is born. It's Jesus, born of a virgin. He is God in the flesh. That's why we have all these supernatural happenings when he shows up, like the star appears and the wise men follow. That's why you have all these different signs where the shepherds are, his birth is announced to the angels because, hey, God is with us. And all this happened in this podunk town in the Middle East, town Bethlehem, house of bread. And this Jesus is laid in a feeding trough. God has come into the world. Secondly, we see this. It says here about him who's with us. For to us a child is born, a son is given. A son is given. Then it says the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now here's the thing: this this baby who has come is obviously he's God in the flesh. He's natural and supernatural. All of the government of the entire world and universe is on his shoulders. So when you think about the manger, I want you to think about the greatest ruler of all time was born in a manger in the Middle East several thousand years ago. The government is on his shoulder. Now, some of you, when I say the word government, you immediately kind of like, let me tell you something about the government. I've been watching Fox News. I've been watching CNN. Let me tell you about the government. You want to tell me a conspiracy theory? You want to let, tell me something you saw online? You want to show me a meme? You want to tell me how bad you think this president is, how bad you think that president is? You want to tell me something about the government? And I want you to get this. Human government has been a mess forever. Okay? It was a mess in Isaiah's time because the kingdom of God had been broken up between Israel and Judah. The Syrians were trying to invade, and then the Assyrians would take over, and you have the Babylonians, you have the Romans, you have death and murder and intrigue and all this kind of stuff. Read Roman history. That's a big mess. Read about the Greeks. That's a big mess. Read about the Middle Ages. That's a big mess. Read about 
Okay? You think about we go to the good old days? I love the good old days when communism was the only thing we had to worry about. Watched the thing about the Korean War the other day. Man, I don't know if things can get worse. Um, some bad mistakes have been made all throughout history. There's been a lot of government issues. But there is this one coming, this one who is God in, in the flesh, that the government will be upon his shoulders. Hinging the peace of all mankind, the ultimate peace and defeat of evil, and the reign of God is on the shoulders of this baby, who is obviously Christ. And then it goes on to describe him in these little couplets, these words that are put together. And they are meant to show us his humanity and his deity, the natural and the supernatural. The next thing it says, that he is wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. The word, word wonderful, it appears in Exodus 3.20, and it has, it has the ability, it has the idea of the ability to produce wonderful signs. When Jesus, first off, the whole birth of Jesus had these wonderful signs that appeared to it. Remember, we talked about the star, the angels appeared, he gets the word from the wise men that they need to leave because Herod is going to kill all the babies and they go to Egypt. God is, God is at work with these wonderful signs and wonders. You remember John the Baptist is conceived and his dad can't speak until they name him John the Baptist. And when, when John is in the womb and Mary comes... John leaps in the womb because he, he senses the presence in his mother's womb of Jesus coming. And then there's so many miraculous things that happen when Jesus shows. And then when Jesus comes on the scene and begins his ministry, the first ministry he, or the first miracle that we know he performs is at the wedding of Canaan and Galilee. And they ran out of wine at the party. And they're like, we don't have any wine. What are we going to do? And Jesus is like, it's not my time. And eventually he goes and he says, I will do this. And what does he do? He turns water into wine. He brings life out of nothing. He makes the best wine possible. Jesus does all these miracles. Remember, he feeds the 5,000 with the happy meal. He goes on. He, he can cast out demons. He can do all this kind of stuff. He, he performs miracles. He cleanses lepers. That is a sign. This, this baby who is born will be able to do that which is supernatural, the wonderful. Why does Jesus do those things? It's to show who he is. Because he needs to show who he is because he is a human being. He has flesh and bone. And he needs to show that he is not just fully human, but that he is fully God. I had a discussion with this to somebody the other day. That the people in Jesus' house did not believe in him until after his resurrection. Like the people in his family, like his half-brothers. They were like, nah, we don't believe he's the Christ until he is raised from the dead. And then they believe. That's a pretty good sign. But I want you to think this. Even if your sibling was the greatest person alive, you would not ever agree to that. You know that, right? Have you had a sibling? There's no way that you would even give in to that. That's, that's why they didn't believe it. That's why it's such a powerful proof of the resurrection that they're like, yeah, my brother is God. That's a pretty big jump. But these wonderful signs, almost ultimately the resurrection, would show that Jesus is supernatural. And so he's the wonderful counselor. Now, when you think of counselor, most of us think of somebody in a real thick sweater 
glasses. He likes, likes you to sit on the couch and is like, tell me about your life. Let's psychoanalyze you. Let's, the idea is, is less like counselor with a pipe, okay, who wants, to, wants you to access your childhood memories. And the, the idea is more like a counselor to a king, one who would give wise counsel. And so this one whose government is on, so this, this Jesus in the manger, on him rests all of the government of the world. On top of that, he is wonderful. He is one who can perform mighty acts, supernatural deeds, and he does. But he is also one who would give wise counsel and advice to advisors. This word is used like that in 2 Samuel chapter 16. So here's the idea that Jesus comes both to do signs and wonders and to give wisdom to his teachings. I want you to get this, and I want it to be very clear to you. Jesus can't just be a good teacher. You know why? Because he claimed to be God. If he's claiming to be God, he's either misrepresenting God, he's insane, or he's actually God. And I'll tell you this, you won't take advice from the guy on the street in Nashville who claims to be God. You know that crazy guy? He's like, I'm God! Would you take life advice from him? I wouldn't. But the fact that the wonderful counselor, this one who performs signs and wonders, also taught with great wisdom, and not just wisdom, but God's wisdom, he is, he is the one in which we can see God manifest himself in the world, and we can also understand God's wisdom. Jesus is that. So when you see the life of Jesus and you think about its beginning, its incarnation, both God's power and wonders and might have come to earth in Jesus. Also, God's wisdom has come in Jesus. Jesus. And so he is the wonderful counselor. And then it goes on to call Jesus in this prophecy. It says he is mighty God. Well, I don't really have to tell you what mighty means because you kind of have an idea, but just, just humor me for a second. Mighty means power. Mighty means strength. In fact, in the Bible, it was often, this word mighty, was often, especially in the Old Testament, was connected with people who were very good at battle. Like David's mighty men. And these guys who just, like, they were the Navy SEALs of their day. The guys who were really into it. I had my tonsils and adenoids taken out as a kid. I was a military brat. I was in, uh, my dad was in the Air Force. And so I had to go to a military hospital to have this done. We went to this Army base called Fort Carson in Colorado. That's where I had it all done. You have not been to a hospital until you've been to an army hospital. It is very regimented, even for kids. It was like, you know, stand at attention. You better not cry, okay? And as, what happens, there is a contingent of Green Berets that are out of Fort Carson. I'm going to tell you what, as a seven-year-old kid, I thought that was the coolest thing I had ever seen in my life because those guys are coming out in their Green Berets. Like, they really have Green Berets. And they're walking through the thing, and you're like, whoa, that guy could kill me, <laughs> Okay? It's like I got an action movie happening in the hospital that I'm getting my adenoids and tonsils taken out. Those are mighty men right there. That's the kind of guy you don't want to jack with, the kind of guy that knows the pressure points in the hole to take you out. That's the one. And the funny thing about those guys is they don't look like, they look like, like average guys, so you don't even know. You better be careful who you're messing with, okay? These mighty men they're the same ones that they, they have this idea of they have a military victory. And so the, the one who has come, Jesus, the God with us, he's fully human and fully God. 
all the government's on his shoulders. He is this wonderful counselor, this one who can perform and has performed supernatural signs, but also has all the wisdom of God manifested in him. He also is mighty, and he will execute God's judgment and reign on the earth. He has the power to do it. He has the power. And also, it says he's God. This is the most common word for God, El Elohim, in the entire Bible. It's not the divine name, which is like or Yahweh, which is just is kind of a, is the, the name. God, the, this, this idea here, or this word is used so much to talk about the one true God. And so this baby born to us is not just a child, as we've talked about. He is the all-powerful God in the flesh. Now, if that just doesn't make your head explode, I don't know what will. Because if you really think about that. Almighty God in the flesh. That is who Jesus is. And again, they're trying to show us that this is a dichotomy. These are two things that, that seem to be contradictory, but in Jesus come together as one. He is God in the flesh, mighty God, all-powerful God, the God who can execute his ability. Do you realize this? There are many who have a will to do something, but not the might to accomplish it. There are many who have the will to do something, but not the might to accomplish it. My son, the other day we were talking about, inevitably you see on the news about something about child abduction, and that makes you feel like you're totally frightened. Because then you're at the mall and you're like going, oh, you know, you're watching out for everybody. I even saw YouTube clips of, child, of children being abducted. It's really unsettling. And we were talking to Judson about how important it is to stay close to us in a crowd and it's Christmas and that kind of stuff. We're not going crazy, you know, thinking it's going to happen. But we're trying to be, take some precautions, okay? And he was like, Dad, don't have to worry about me. I'll just kick him. I'll punch him. I know some moves, and he's doing his karate moves and stuff. He has the will, but he, has, he does not have the might. He's six, and he can kick you hard. I know this from, from firsthand. We're wrestling. All of a sudden, it's like, yeah, okay. But I don't think he's going to be able to overcome every attacker because he has the will, but not the might. But this child who has come, who is Jesus the Christ, he has the will and the might to accomplish God's purposes because he is God in the flesh. When you see the manger, that's who it is. He is the one who's governed. He's a child. The child who was born to us is the one who the government's on his shoulder. He's the wonderful counselor, the supernatural power of God mixed with the wisdom of God in the body of Jesus. He is also the mighty God, the one who has the will to execute God's plan, the one who can execute God's plan because he has the might, and he is fully, fully, fully God and fully man. It is a divine mystery but all the evidence points to it being true. Goes on to say that he is the everlasting father, or some would say the eternal father. Now, father is an everyday word, but um, when you couple it with eternal, there's a supernatural meaning. Father means the, the, you know, one from whom offspring would come. 
but also we have this eternal, which means everlasting. And so you know this about Jesus. He has always existed because he is co-eternal with the Father. Jesus didn't, it wasn't just God's idea haphazardly to make another person and for it to be Jesus. God has always existed. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. Now that is a huge divine mystery, and what we're doing is we're just describing what the Bible teaches. We talk about the word Trinity. God is three in one. Jesus has always existed. He's eternal. He's everlasting, and there's never a time that he won't exist. But he's also, it says Father. Now, usually, we talk about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's very odd for, for Jesus to be described this way, but there's a couple of sections in which Jesus is affectionately talking to people in which he refers to people as sons and daughters. And we see that in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, or Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, and Mark chapter 5, verse 34. And so there's a fatherly element to Jesus' rule and reign and to the way he went about talking to his people. Jesus cared for his people especially his disciples and those who would follow him. He cared so much for them that he was patient and kind with them. Do you remember Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he asked the guys, guys, would you just please would you stay up and pray with me? And you know what happened? Every one of those jokers was out cold sleeping. And he had to wake them up two times, like, hey, guys, let's go. The next time he welcomes up, my time's here, it's time to go. He had so much patience with the disciples. Do you know there's a story in the Gospels in which his disciples got, got their mom to come and, and ask for special treatment? It's true. James and John were like, hey, mom, would you come talk to Jesus for us? I mean, these are grown men, okay? And they said, had, had their mom go up and say, Jesus, would you tell my sons they can be number one and number two in your kingdom? And Jesus is like, really, your mom? <laughs> And then he talks about the last shall be first, the first shall be last. What are you doing? He is patient with these jokers. They fail and they fall and they don't understand. But he keeps teaching them and loving them. And that is what we have with this this everlasting father, this God who is eternal and the God who cares. And if you don't think God cares about you, you have to look at the incarnation the coming of Jesus. Because if God was indifferent to, hu- to the human plight of sin and death and suffering and a separation from God, he would never have come to the earth. God is not indifferent to you. you just need, someone, someone needs to hear that today. God is not indifferent. In the coming of Christ, we see that he is an eternal father who cares. Not only that, the Bible says that not only is Jesus a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, but he is the prince of peace. Now, don't let prince get, get you too much. His prince is not the same as a king. Well, he's already called everlasting father. He's always one with the father. But the idea of prince is an official. And so he has rule and reign. He has power. So Jesus reigns as an official. And the word prince is used in several different places on Isaiah to talk about a ruler, uh, an official. So Jesus is this ruler who brings peace. Now I want you to know something. After Jesus is resurrected and he appears to his disciples, you know what he has to say to them every time? Peace. Seen in John chapter 21 a whole bunch of times. John, or actually John, John 20. John 20, uh, verse 19, 21, and 26. Now, if you think about this, it is important that he says peace to you because I want you to know this. If after I went to someone's funeral or saw them dead, 
and they showed up, I would need them to calm me down. Would you not? One of my worst nightmares would be to be locked in a mortuary. Like, not those graveyards. That can be freaky at night. But like a funeral home? Uh Uh-uh. There's too many drains and tubes. Mm -mm. You imagine if you got locked in there? Be the worst. Think you imagine somebody saying, hey, (laughs) I mean... So this guy shows up in locked rooms. Peace be with you. Thank you for saying that. The resurrected Christ needs to say peace. And to say also, you imagine the, the, what the death, they had put all their hopes in him as the Messiah. He dies. All their hopes are dashed. And he comes and says, no, peace. The world is raging against Jesus and his followers. But he says, peace. To the resurrection. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who brings peace through the power of his resurrection. And that's how we can know peace with God at funerals and other things because we know that in Jesus there is the peace of resurrection that his people can know. Also we see this, that, that Jesus, he spoke peace to his disciples. He says peace in, in John 14, 27. He says, peace I give to you, not peace like the world. This peace is different. This is a peace from God. We can know peace in the midst of struggle. Peace, this overwhelming sense of that, that, that God is in control and that we can trust him. And a peace that passes understanding is available through Christ. We also know this. And most of all, Jesus gives us eternal peace with God by his death on the cross. Romans 5.1. So when you see the manger, you have to think about the cross. Because God did not just come, but he came to bring, be the prince of peace. And how does he bring ultimate peace between God and man? The cross. He dies a death he did not deserve. And is raised so that all who believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is the peace that God gives, and that's the peace that you need most, is this peace with God that comes through Christ. He is the Prince of Peace, and he will bring ultimate peace, too, through his government. Because it goes on, and it says here, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So get this, Jesus, he, we talked, he's going to be, the government's going to be on his shoulder, but he's going to bring in a kingdom, a rule of God, and he's going to be the king. He's bringing in this rule that will, will, will bring ultimate peace. What do I mean by this? Ultimate peace is seen in this, that Jesus will be the one who destroys all of his enemies and those who do not believe. Revelation 19. We'll do it by the word of his mouth. Also, we know this, that those who are in Christ will know full peace with God and enjoy his presence for all time on a new heaven and a new earth. Book of Revelation, chapter 20 and 21. This Jesus is going to bring a government an ever-increasing government, which is interesting. How could something be total and ever-increasing? Because it does say this, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
Well, how does that happen? One commentator talks about it this way. Jesus is so glorious, and his rule and reign in our lives, ultimately, when he comes in the new heavens and the new earth, will be so great that we will never stop increasing in our love for him and our passionate knowledge, and our passionate, knowledgeable worship of him. Like, Jesus is that great that we can never stop increasing in our love for him because we find a new facet of it because he will never we will even though we will be redeemed one day and we'll be with him in a new heavens and a new earth that doesn't mean we will be eternal like he is in the sense of we will have we won't have um, we won't have omniscience all knowledge we will continue to grow and wonder at the knowledge of who he is now i'll tell you this this is a way a small way you can see this i married a lovely lady and i know sometimes i give her grief in here about different things but Lord help her, because she's married to me. And I'm way more of a problem than she is. I'm just amazed at, at, at the compassion she has for other people. I don't share that. She helps me understand it, but I don't have that. And sometimes it's amazing. We've been married, we'll be, have been married 15 years in July. Yay, <laughs> thank you. Woo, 15 years. And I, I tell you what, I love her more now than I did when we got married. And she's not here today, okay? So she doesn't, I'm not trying to win any brownie points. I'm just telling you the truth. There's been an increase in my love for her over the time because I just recognized her character and seen God move in her life. The God of the universe, even when we are redeemed, will still continue to awe us. And he is such a great treasure that even when we are redeemed, and we are in the new heavens and new earth with him, we will still be in awe and learn more and more and the increase of his government and his awesomeness will never cease to amaze us. That's how big this God is. The increase of his government and his peace, there'll be no end, even for us when we are redeemed on a new heaven and a new earth when he's come back. It also says about this man and his kingdom, this is God, man, in his kingdom, that he's on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus is fulfilling the promise made to King David in 2 Samuel seven thirteen and 16 that David would be a king who would reign forever and there would always be a king the everlasting king on David's throne who will reign over the whole earth. Jesus fulfills that. So that's why when you get to the Bible and they have those big, long lineage things that you go, why is that happening? This guy begot this guy, and this guy begot that guy, and this guy has a bad name, and he begot this guy. When you see that in the Bible, it is showing you that Jesus is the rightful heir to David's throne. So God has written a story that began before time, has been executed throughout time, and Jesus is the rightful king on the throne of David. And he is the king of Israel, and he is the king of the world, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, he is the prince of peace, and all who come to him will know everlasting life, and he is that God. He is the one who is God with us. And then it says, the last one, it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's passion for his own glory will see the plan of Christ fulfilled. When we think about the coming of Jesus, we have to think about his second coming, that God, will, who began a good work, will fulfill this work, and he will bring to completion 
all of history. Now, hopefully what we have done to the, today is look in this passage as you said, man, Jesus is amazing and I should worship him. But I got to thinking about something. A lot of times when we think about Emmanuel, God with us, we think it's, it has to relate to how God can help me in my life and how God enters into my life. And we don't think of it as who he is, is we don't review him as the ruler. Um, have you ever seen these bumper stickers that says, God is my co-pilot? Ever seen those before? Um, have you ever wondered, like, where does stuff like that come from? Maybe you don't. I do. I'm like, why? who's the first person that was like, you know what I should do? I should make a bumper sticker that says, God is my co-pilot, and I'll put it on my Chevy. When was the last time? You got in the car, and you were like, I'm the pilot today, everybody. That's like a bad dad joke. You know what I mean? My dad used to go, welcome to Flying Brown Airlines. I'm like, Dad, come on, you know? You know dad jokes. The jokes that aren't really funny, but you laugh at anyway because you love your dad. You know? It's like a dad joke. Co-pilot. If you're saying when you drive your car, I'm piloting my car, you're telling a dad joke right there, and you need to get into rehabilitation, okay? God is my co-pilot. That is such a weird thing. Did? Googled it. Origin, God is my co-pilot, all right? You're thinking, man, you have too much time on your hands. That is not necessarily true, but I'm a little bit weird, so I Googled this, okay? Now, turns out this actually started in the 40s, okay? Whoa, right? There was a book by a guy named Robert L. Scott who was a World War II fighter pilot. His memoirs were called God is My Co-Pilot. And this book came out in 1945, all right? So that's pretty old. Then in the 70s or 80s, somebody remembered that phrase, forgot exactly what it went to, and decided, I'm going to slap this on a bumper sticker and make some Christianese art, and I'm going to sell these things at family Christian bookstores and Lifeway. It wasn't Lifeway at the time. I'm going to sell these at Christian bookstores. People are going to put them on their car. People are going to like, look at that guy. God is his co-pilot. All right. And then inevitably, there's a theological backlash because it was like, God's your co-pilot. He's not the pilot. And so then they came up with this other phrase. You Hold on. Are you with me, by the way? I know that got a little weird. We're going somewhere with this. So just hold on. Then the phrase got this, if God is your co-pilot, then switch seats. You may have even seen a shirt from a sticker that said that. That is better theology than God is my co-pilot. I just want you to know that. But I would like to venture something to you. As dumb as we have all reckoned, if you have that on your car today, and I call that dumb, I love you in Jesus' name. We can, t- <laughs> we can talk later, and I will repent to you for my harsh words. But I will say this. We oftentimes, when we come to the Scriptures, we think about God entering into our story with God with us. God, I'm having, in my life, I'm having trouble here. My family's doing this. Finances here. Da, 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 da. And we take God, when we think about God with us, we get all, we get the warm fuzzies because, and it's great because he is true. He is God with us. But we think about God being with us on our agenda in our life. And I will venture to tell you that a lot of times that's why we are so disappointed 
at church and with messages is because we just want to take what we think about the messages at church and the Bible studies, we just want to take everything and cram God into our life and our story. And he'll be the co-pilot in essence. But did you, did you, you read this with me and we walked through this. This God, his story is way bigger than yours and mine. And we will be forever unsatisfied if we just keep trying to apply God and move him and try to wiggle our way for, us be, for him being in our story. That's too small for the incarnation. That's too small for this wonderful counselor, this mighty God. That's too small for him. And I venture to tell you this, not only should we be in awe and worship Jesus, but we should be, have complete devotion and surrender to Jesus by saying, no, 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 no. I'm not trying to say God with us in my life. I am trying to say God is with us and I'm in his story now. And if you're in his story, the main objective is different. If we are trying to apply God into our story, you know what we're trying to do? We're trying to help God make us look good and make God help us in all of our ways. And we're trying to glorify ourselves, whether we realize it or not. But if we switch the the script and we see this one who's wonderful counselor, mighty God, as we are going, we are in his story now, then the purpose is different. Now our life is fulfilled, not by people glorifying us or good things happening in our family, but now our life is fulfilled if we are living for his glory in all things. That means our, in our struggle, it's about Jesus. Our life story is not about us. It's about Jesus, and he's accomplishing redemption. And then also, we're living on mission, which means that my life is not about my comfort or whether I like this song or that song or this chair or this way to worship. The idea is about I am on mission for Jesus, who is this wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the ruler of all mankind. And I would submit to you that we will not be satisfied and understand the fullness of God with us until we submit to his kingdom and his story as our story. And we don't keep trying to apply God to our own life that we've already been the own pilot of. We do a full-handed surrender And we live according to his story, his mission, his glory. And it's akin to this. When I was seven years old, we had a uh, Mitsubishi Montero, and we lived in Colorado Springs. If you don't know what a Mitsubishi Montero is, it's an SUV. It had four-wheel drive because we moved to the mountains, and my dad thought we needed a four-wheel drive car. Funny thing about that thing was we spun out in that car so many times from ice than the other one. But I remember it was a Sunday night. We went to church, and we're coming home, and a blizzard hit. So it's dark. A blizzard hit. And we're all from, my mom and dad are from South Alabama, and I was born in Florida. So was my brother. We don't, we're not equipped for blizzards, like ever. And a Colorado blizzard is a real blizzard. Okay, we get an inch, two inches of snow here on the ground. It's like apocalypse. Okay, bread and food or, or bread and uh, and milk are going for a thousand dollars, you know, an ounce or, or a loaf. Okay, people are, you know, it's like Lord of the Flies, like heads on pikes, like it's the end of the world, snow apocalypse, twenty nineteen. Okay, there 
I mean, that's just life. We were at the base of Pikes Peak. We're driving. We had to drive this 20-minute drive from our church to our house in this Mitsubishi Montero. And there was a sense of kind of the little bit of terror. But my dad was driving. And so, you know, I was not nearly as frightened as I should have been. As he was white knuckled. And I'm just sitting, I mean, I remember I was, had a Game Boy. Okay? Some of you need to Google that, okay? I had a little, my little game, and I'm playing my Game Boy. Actually, I think maybe we had upgraded to Game Gear at that time. I don't remember exactly. I'm playing my little game while we're driving home in the most inclement, one of the mo- most inclement weathers I've ever been in, okay? Like, just one of the worst storm, like, just this huge snowstorm. We can barely see in front of us. There's big drop-offs everywhere. Why am I okay? Because my dad, he'd never let me down. He's driving the car. What do I got to worry about? I mean, yes, obviously, things can happen. And there was a little bit of fear because it wasn't been anything like that in my life. But he's got the wheel. He's got it. And the picture that is painted of Jesus the Christ in the Bible is not as somebody who can make your life better, but somebody that you have to give your life to. And once you lose your life for his sake, then you'll truly find it. And he is this everlasting father. He is this one who cares. He is this prince of peace, one who can bring a peace that surpasses understanding. He is the one whom you owe all your life because he gave all of his life so that you might have life. That is this Jesus, the one who is God in control. And so God is with us, makes us think, it should make us think of the God who is in control, of the Christ who, has reign, who reigns victorious and will come again victorious. It makes us think about his story. And here's the deal. His story is big enough for your story to fit into it. And when we say God is with us, there's a submission that should be to that, where we say, your story, thank you that I could be with you, that you care enough to be with me, and that I could be on mission for you. You got this, you're driving the truck. I might be a little bit scared, but you got it. And so that's when we come, we looked last week at the fact that God has brought hope through a child, Jesus. This week, I want us to see that God with us, we should, it's, the one who is with us is wonderful, beyond our wildest dreams. And the one who is with us is worthy of all of our life and devotion. And we will be really unsatisfied if we try to live any other way, any other way except for our life as part of his story on his mission. And so I want to give us some time to let this, this truth kind of sit with us because Christmas is a busy season. We're running. We're doing all these different types of things. We're trying to, trying to cram in all the family get-togethers, cram in all the parties, cram in all the finger foods, cram in all the buying the presents, cram in the trees, cram in all this stuff. And I'm going to give you a minute to let this settle in on us and to realize that the incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas, the coming of God to the earth in the form of Jesus, that it demands our devotion 
in our life. And so what we're going to do is we're going to play a song, and then we're going to pass out communion and take communion together as our way of saying we are devoted to you. And this is a time for you to just, as we get some soul space to kind of deal with what God sent through his word, for you to really think about what God said to you through this message today and what area you need to work on. Maybe to some, it's like you just need to see Jesus for who he is, and this, you need to go back and look at this passage, and you need to come and worship. For some, there's been a, you've been living for yourself, and you need to turn, and you're not satisfied with it, and you need to turn and devote yourself to Jesus and say, I am living for your story, not my story anymore. Your mission, not mine. So let's pray, and we'll, we'll watch this together and respond. God, thank you that you have not left us alone. We're thankful that you are God with us and that we are part, that we can be a part of your story. Help us to worship you as as you are, to understand who is with us, and to submit to you how we should. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to be dismissed with these words and this hope. For to us, a child is born, a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulders. And this Jesus, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This God is with us, he is for us, and we should live on his mission because he deserves it. Go in his grace and peace. You're dismissed.